0: Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer Podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Dani Binnington, and today we're going to be exploring why a cancer patient who is also a gynecologist and a menopause expert would consider hormone replacement therapy after her own Breast cancer diagnosis. I know this is an emotive subject that is very controversial, but I'm feeling it's really important to have this conversation. I'm delighted to welcome the brilliantly wonderful and gorgeous Dr. Corinne Men onto the podcast today, a US board-certified gynecologist who will share her own story of why she decided to go on hormone replacement therapy many years after her breast cancer diagnosis.
1: Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to go straight into the deep end. You're a gynecologist, menopause specialist, a breast cancer survivor yourself. Many years after your diagnosis, you started to take hormone replacement therapy. This is a controversial episode. I've already got goosebumps, (laughs) but I want to have this conversation with you in a non-judgmental way and really hear from you as the patient and you as the expert. Where
1: do we start? Well, we can start just with my kind of story of my diagnosis so we are all kind of know where I'm coming from. Because remember, for all you, the listeners out there, it's just always important that they understand that um, every breast cancer is like your unique fingerprint. You know, it's very hard to kind of compare, you know, all our individual cases because, you know, breast cancer is an incredibly complex and very individualized cancer. But that's why we need to start to individualize how we care for these women. And that's not being done. So my unique story is that when I was 28, I was a second year um, OBGYN resident in New York and um, no family history of breast cancer or any cancers. And my mom is diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and she dies a few months later. Around the time of her diagnosis, I felt a small lump in my breast. All my fellow OBGYN residents, they were all female. They all felt it. And they're like, oh, Corinne, is just a fibroadenoma. I put it off. Everyone's like, oh, oh, it's just a sister fibroadenoma. Don't worry. So there was the first time that I was doing wrong by myself, right? Because I didn't listen to my body. I was really too busy taking care of other women and then dealing with my mom. She dies in November of 2001. And I was like, damn, I should probably get this checked out. Like, that's a little weird. She was only 54. Lo and behold, Finally, right before um, the Christmas holidays in 2001, I was diagnosed with stage 2 estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer, Um, had a bilateral mastectomy, and I had um, my one sentinel node had a micrometastatic focus. It was less than 2 millimeter, which made me at the time 2A. I believe they now make that a 1B. Uh, So I was a stage 2A breast cancer. My tumor was at 1.4 centimeters, and then I did... um, I I did save some eggs prior to chemotherapy, wound up not needing that, we'll talk about that, Um, but I had four cycles of adriamycin and cytopsin, then four cycles of taxotere, Uh, they gave me Lupron to shut down my ovaries during chemo because at the time they thought that might help preserve ovarian function and reserve, which they were trying to do because I was young, Um, and then as soon as I finished chemotherapy, um, they put me on Tamoxifen. And then we can talk separately about, you know, lots happened after that as well. But that was my initial treatment. Um, and it was, you know, like a bat out of hell, right? Like you're 28, you know, newly really married, thinking about maybe starting a family soon. I'm spending my days delivering babies on the on the labor and delivery floor. And on the gynecology floor, I was taking care of sick ovarian cancer patients, uterine cancer, very complicated. So it was a very jarring and, and very kind of traumatic environment for me to be in. No one understood young women. I felt like um, an oddity um, when I was getting my chemotherapy. Everyone looked at me like, oh, she's so young, so young for breast cancer. So it was traumatic on so many levels. And I just, my own fellow OBGYNs didn't had never heard of such a young person with breast cancer, even though it's actually the most common cancer in young women, right? And um, certainly nobody knew what to do with all of my side effects that then happened from my chemotherapy and my early menopause.
0: Yeah. And I can hear you want to fill us in on your story, but if I just try and imagine this young woman who's not only struggling because she's losing her mother to a cancer that you also treat other cancer patients for, And then you're also diagnosed with a cancer of the female organs or body parts. This is huge. This shakes the foundations of femininity, right? Of breast cancer treatment changes our body, but also our sort of internal puzzle is kind of like exploded and then we're put together, but often in the wrong way. That's how I felt for a long time. Like my puzzle pieces don't fit anymore. And some of them were taken away with trauma forever and others replaced and they got changed and you end up this new person trying to figure out who you are. I suppose as a young patient who was also busy um, being a young expert, you took the treatment, like we we, we embark on surgery and chemotherapy and tamoxifen because this is what's recommended to us and we want to do everything in our most possible way to survive. Did you feel like that as well? hey thanks for listening to this episode 73% of people who listen to my podcast haven't yet clicked the follow button on their podcast player I want these conversations to reach as many women as possible who might need it so if you've ever enjoyed this podcast please hit the follow button now
1: yes and you know I granted I was in a privileged position in that I was a physician. I was in New York City. I had access to doctor friends who got me into the best experts in the world. And I will have to say, looking back, I felt lucky that I felt very... um, I knew what my treatment options were, mastectomy, lumpectomy, the different chemotherapy. I understood tamoxifen. They weren't really using my rheumatoid inhibitors that much at the time. I'm sure they would have put me on it (laughs) if it was now. I did get good... Care initially, I think. I think the biggest problem was is that once they treated me for my primary breast cancer, with when I completed my chemotherapy, and um, I I was lucky enough at the time to work with someone in New York City who was kind of on the cutting edge of um, fertility preservation for breast cancer survivors. And so, before chemo, I did save um, ovaries. And for your listeners, very interesting. They used tamoxifen to stimulate my ovaries. To harvest eggs. And that's because tamoxifen is not an estrogen blocker. It's just not. In fact, when you take tamoxifen, your estrogen levels for a premenopausal woman, they rise. So you get an increase in estrogen levels, and it stimulated my ovaries to produce lots of eggs, and they were able to harvest a bunch of those eggs. I never, and we froze them. I didn't need those eggs because down the road, Once I came off the lupron, my periods did come back. Because when you're younger and you go through chemotherapy, your periods often do come back. Um, And so I was able, once my periods came back, I made the decision with my oncologist and my husband. We said, okay, we're going to try for a pregnancy. And I was able to immediately get pregnant on my own, had a healthy baby, and she's 19 now. Um, And then when I finished, so I stopped my tamoxifen, um, got pregnant, had my baby, went back on my tamoxifen. Basically, that's the positive trial that was just um, presented at ASCO this past winter, which says that women in estrogen receptor positive breast cancer can pause their adjuvant endocrine therapy, come off it, have their you know estrogen levels rise, you know, hopefully their periods come back, and they're able to pursue pregnancy with very high levels of estrogen in their pregnancy, and then they can go back on their adjuvant endocrine therapy. So I did that study basically myself. You know, you know, it was 20 years ago. Um, so I was lucky to have forward-thinking physicians uh, in terms of that. But it's very interesting for our conversation about menopause, let's relate it back to the pregnancy thing. There is now, uh, you know, it, it, is, it should be common knowledge that women who are breast cancer survivors can still pursue a pregnancy. But let's keep the logical thinking going here, right? During that pregnancy, you have incredibly high levels of estrogen right? Um, And what the studies have shown is that you don't have an increased risk of recurrence or a worse prognosis if you pause your treatment so that you could get pregnant, or if you frankly get pregnant after you've totally completed your treatment. Um, And the data was there 20 years ago, and that's why I felt comfortable doing it. And so we've got a lot of, we've got now 20 years more of that data, plus this incredible positive trial. So I think that's often something I bring up when I'm talking about hormone therapy in menopause to kind of like let's look at where we where hormones intercept with breast cancer patients in other scenarios. So that's an important mm. little point. How
0: did you do on your tamoxifen because we have you know women that are sent away by their oncologist saying, oh, just take this little white pill for the next five years. Some women are are sent away with a lot more information. We hear very mixed reports. Some oncologists say, we didn't want to give too much information out because this woman might not have all of these bad symptoms. And so it's a really personal conversation to have with your medical professionals. Were you, as a medic yourself, did you know what you could expect and how was your experience?
1: So my experience as a patient, I would say, um, I mean, my doctors were good. They were, they were, they were kind to me. They did the best I think that they thought they were doing. But no, nobody explained any of the side effects. No one ever talked about menopause. No one ever talked about the hormonal changes I was going to face from the Lupron injection. Um, And they didn't explain the differences to me between tamoxifen used in premenopausal women versus tamoxifen in postmenopausal women. They really um, have different side effects. You know, it, it presents differently in those women. So no, I was not prepared whatsoever. And in retrospect, I think I often blamed um, things on, oh, it's chemo brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Program chemo, that's one thing. Um, so, and my experience with tamoxifen was unique because I was on tamoxifen um, when I wasn't getting my period. So I was menopausal, right? Then my periods kind of came back on their own, right? They recover. Then um, I had a baby, went back on the tamoxifen, And I did great on tamoxifen when I was still getting my period. And we know that we can give tamoxifen to premenopausal women for early stage breast cancer, right? As adjuvant therapy. We don't necessarily have to do hormone suppression, ovarian suppression, in addition to tamoxifen. Meaning those women who are taking tamoxifen, who are premenopausal without ovarian suppression, have very high levels of estrogen. So if you were taking tamoxifen and you're premenopausal, you know, your side effects are probably going to be a lot different than if they give you tamoxifen, and you're now either postmenopausal because you don't have ovaries anymore, or you're on leuprol. Right? When I was premenopausal, hormonally, and taking tamoxifen, I personally tolerated it really, really well. I honestly didn't have problems with it. I see patients all the time that within a week of taking tamoxifen, regardless of being pre or postmenopausal, they they do have a lot of significant effects, but I wished my oncologist would have explained to me that tamoxifen does not do the following. It does not put you into menopause. It does not lower your estrogen levels, okay? It does not cause early menopause, right? If you're premenopausal and you're taking tamoxifen, you need to understand it's a designer estrogen is what they're giving you. It's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. We have to stop calling it a blocker because when we call Tamoxifen, and estrogen blocker, it makes us feel very afraid of any estrogen and of something in our own bodies.
0: But does it block that the estrogen goes to your breasts? Is that
1: where maybe that language is coming I, from, or how does yeah. it work in the body? I think it's. Listen, we're in medicine. Doctors are busy. They're trying to see patients with complicated things, and it's just easy to like use these eu- euphemisms and these kind of like, oh, it's an estrogen blocker to lower your risk of breast cancer, and but it, it's very conf- it doesn't really inform a patient. So it's very important for women to understand that there's receptors in your body to, to estrogen in, in all of your cells. And on your breast cells, if you have intact breasts, or if you have breast cells that are floating around, setting up shop, being quiet, they've escaped chemotherapy, and they're just kind of sitting there waiting, what the tamoxifen can do is you bind to the estrogen receptor and kind of compete with estrogen from binding to the receptor. And basically it's not allowing that receptor to be kind of stimulated to tell it to kind of work towards cell growth. But the thing about tamoxifen that people don't understand, and I think it would be very powerful for women to understand this, is that scientists know that tamoxifen works in probably 10 other ways besides the estrogen receptor. And in fact, at the Menopause Society Conference, we were just at... um, the National Society of Commerce in the U.S. Um, there was a, sh- a lot of emphasis on these selective estrogen receptor modulators and how they actually function, and they they really kind of celebrated how tamoxifen and these other SERMs work by you know doing things on your immune system and stimulating different immune cells and and doing other things in the environment around a breast cancer cell um, that you know really creates an anti-tumor effect. And so this is why tamoxifen does a beautiful job in women who still have very high levels of estrogen in premenopausal women. So I think that's another talking point. So I talk about the pregnancy, we talk about how tamoxifen works, and it starts making women understand like, oh, it's not estrogen bad, estrogen good, or, you know, we have to cut off all sources of estrogen. It's a lot more nuanced, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that kind of will help us, you know, get to the point where we can talk about hormone therapy after breast cancer.
0: Yeah, and I think when we talk about estrogens in general, we translate them into all areas of our life. I've just been on a workshop with an amazing oncology nutritionist, and we had 40 women joining us for the conversation. And three women always ask, do I need to stay away from phytoestrogens in my food? I had an estrogen driven breast cancer. And so it's this the conversation is the same, isn't it? Whether we are not so well informed on how tamoxifen works or whether we don't really know what phytoestrogens can do for us. It's this real worry about the estrogens in
1: general. What? Absolutely, and you just said something which I'm going to call you out on. You said something called estrogen-driven cancers, and I oh, yeah. think so. Really, you know, there's a, a couple of things when people say, "Yeah, I have a, I have that kind of cancer that is caused by estrogen," they say, or it's estrogen, yeah. or the word, estrogen is fueling my cancer, or estrogen caused my cancer, and it's just completely wrong language, and it's really it, it's a fundamental language difference that we need to change because women really are not understanding even what their cancer was. So to be very clear, all breast breast cells in your body, and that's not cancer, just a regular breast cell, has estrogen receptors, as does receptors on cells in your bone and in your skin and your uterine lining, your ovaries and your brain, okay? Estrogen receptors are on all tissue, right? So let's talk about the breast cell, a normal looking healthy breast cell is going to have estrogen and progesterone receptors. When we look at cancer and, and they look under the microscope and they're looking, how angry does the breast or does the cancer cell in any cancer look? How how different does it look from a normal cell? That's what the um, pathologist is looking at. So we're looking at breast cancer cells, when we look down at the cell and we see that those cells have still retained their estrogen receptors, it means they actually still look fairly similar to a normal breast cell. When you were talking about estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor negative breast cancer, those breast cells have changed and become so angry looking, I need to say, that they've actually lost their receptors to estrogen. And progesterone. Okay, so that was me. Yes, and so in those patients, the, those cancer cells have changed in a way that there are no more receptors, right? And they often divide a little bit quicker, and you know, and more rapidly. And they often, in general, respond a little bit more to chemotherapy because chemotherapy works on a rapidly dividing cells. Actually, receptor positive breast cancer means that your Breast cancer just happened to still retain its receptors. It does not mean estrogen caused your breast cancer. It doesn't mean well, it's a estrogen-driven breast cancer. It means that there's something on those breast cancer cells that we as doctors and science can use to manipulate that breast cancer cell temporarily to treat your breast cancer. Just like mm. there's treatments that are being developed for estrogen receptor negative breast breast cancer regions, where they can manipulate and do different things to help, you know, keep that cell from kind of growing and coming back, okay? And that's a very different concept than estrogen drives my breast cancer. And because yeah. receptors, it caused it. And when patients are, hear it from their oncologist, like, well, you've got like the kind of cancers that's caused by estrogen. It makes women feel that their own bodies are... are their own, you know, their own hormones, but killing them and hurting them, and it and it's it's just not true, and it, and I think it's very important because then it sets up fear for things like vaginal estrogen, or yeah, have yeah. A reasonable conversation about a well-treated patient who's completed her therapy and is really suffering from the menopausal symptoms, and it leads her to have an, a, a just an utter misunderstanding and fear from the from the. Get-go of even discussing low-dose hormone therapy. Mm. Mm. And really
0: coming back to sort of the risks of breast cancer, it's bad luck, right? We know that. <laughs> it's being a woman, it's having breasts, and and those are unmodifiable risk factors. And I think that is the hardest when it comes to being diagnosed with cancer, any type of cancer, because a lot of the risks we can't mitigate, we can't take them away, however much. We're trying to. Tell me what happened next in your story. You had your baby, you had your daughter, you went back on the tamoxifen. Second time round, from what I heard from you, wasn't so easy. How old were you then? And then when did you stop tamoxifen? What happened next?
1: After delivering Eva, I went right back on tamoxifen. Um, Initially, I, I let them do six months of loop run. They're like, oh, let's just. And again, this is them just playing around and not having any spying fear about this well, let's just suppress your ovarian o- function. I was like, okay. I felt so grateful that they let me, quote unquote, get pregnant. And I was like, okay. And so then immediately, deliver a baby, they put me into artificial menopause again with the Lupron shot. So I was, I did not tolerate that well. And, and, and I said, no, no thank you to the Lupron anymore. Let me just stay on tamoxifen. And at that time, I was around probably, I was about 31 then. And at this point, speaking of risk factors, this is a perfect segue. At this point, I had tested negative for the BRCA1 and 2 gene. And remember, my mom dies at 54 of ovarian cancer. I'm you know 28 with breast cancer. It never sat right with me. It seemed, well, obviously there's something wrong with my genes because that just is too <laughs> weird, right? And they're like, yeah, you're negative. Fine. Around that time, um, I... Was you know making the decision and like okay I'm gonna stand this tamoxifen I'm gonna complete it for my five years at least and around that time a a dear friend who I met during my breast cancer journey um she unfortunately passed away um from breast cancer um right after delivering her baby her metastatic disease was there before she was probably pregnant she was very it was it was a a very tragic situation. And in that moment, I made this kind of decision like, okay, I just want to stay on my tamoxifen. And we decided to adopt our second child. And we did that. And um, little, little baby girlfriend, um, we went to travel to Guatemala and she's now 17. But so wow. I, I've got my family complete. I've got my two daughters. And at that point, I'm on my tamoxifen kind of handling it okay, because at this point, I wasn't menopausal, right? Um, Corinne,
0: Corinne, I'm going to stop you. At that point, because at every single point in our journey, we weigh up our risks versus benefits. Should I eat the apple, the sugary, I don't know, chocolate, whatever it is, is a whole life is risks versus benefits conversation, isn't it? At the point where you wanted to complete your family with a second child, did it feel too risky for you to stop your tamoxifen because of what happened to your friend?
1: You didn't want to stop tamoxifen. (laughs) So in retrospect, I think I made a very emotional decision. And it was, and also it was, you know, I was living in a gray zone, right? It's 28, premenopausal breast cancer, very young, already had one pregnancy, an emotional reaction to seeing a friend pass away. Again, her cancer was never mine. So there was no science that says what's the next best thing. But yes, I, I made my decision out of fear of, you know, Obviously, wanting to survive and be there for my baby. And also just saying like, okay, they told me five to 10 years of tamoxifen. Let me try to get that. How can I do that without taking another pause, right? I get Um, it. In retrospect now, I probably could have had a second pregnancy and then just continued on with my tamoxifen. But at the time, that felt right to me. And um, the other thing that felt right to me, once we adopted Lucia, we decided that like, okay, mom died of ovarian cancer. I know I tested negative for this gene. Something doesn't feel right. I want my ovaries out. Okay, again, this was me listening to my inner soul, and my doctors were like, "You don't have to. are you don't carry the gene." I said, "I know, but something doesn't make sense, people." And um, now this was another big turning point where now I became. I, so I chose to have an elective oophorectomy, and I was not prepared for what came next: yeah. the surgical menopause. And I and I think I again it it was a fear it was definitely a little bit of a fear based decision but there was something in me that was telling me i should do that so i i do that and within 2 months my life had really changed the was difficult but you know it was temporary being surgically menopausal plus the tamoxifen but it was really the surgical menopause me you know, over the end you know probably gained 15 pounds in 2 months horrible joy pain my insomnia was through the roof you know the sexual side effects the mood changes you know you know you talk about it all all the time that was severe and that's when i got involved with the north american menopause society now called the menopause society says lord i've got to learn how to deal with menopausal women because if this is what they're dealing with god i feel so bad for them because i was at this point in my early 30s like i had no reason to like sympathize with menopausal women except for my own personal experience um but at that time, I was like, well, I can help them. I can't help myself because, God, I can't have anything, you know, hormone-related. And at that point, um, looking back, nobody, not my oncologist, my GYN, nobody at any point in time, and at that point, it had been like probably seven years from my original diagnosis, had ever said, hey, Corinne, you are not sleeping well. What is that do to your mood? Corinne, what about the sexual side effects? Are you having painful sex? Um, how how are your bones? How is your brain health? Nobody cared about any of that. Nobody asked me any questions. And honestly, I was just a busy mom and a busy doctor. I wasn't even thinking about that. So it was really my suffering that made me think that I need to help other women. But at the same time, I still wasn't addressing all of those very vital things. So like they were ensuring my breast cancer, you know, I hope, I hope it never comes back. But they weren't doing anything for any other aspect of my health. And in fact, my health was declining. It was.
0: Yeah.
1: Lipids were going up. My I, I got mm-hmm. bone loss. I mean, you name it, right? But then, and this is a very important point, is I get a phone call from a cousin who did not have breast cancer. She had an astute primary care doctor who said, hey, you should get genetic testing. You've got a strong family history. And we hadn't really been in touch. And so she'd gotten tested as she... Lo and behold, she carries a broccoli gene and she calls me up. I know we haven't spoken in a while, but I carried this gene. Do you have it? I was like, wait, I have breast cancer and I don't have the gene, but you do. So I finally went back to my oncologist. I said it was around 2013. I was like, listen, you need to retest me. There's something called update panel testing. And it's like, oh, you probably don't need a career. I'm like, are you kidding me? And this is at a major New York City cancer center, one of the most famous in the world. Okay. And nobody from that cancer center ever recalled me and says, hey, you were tested in you know 2001. You should have update tested. It was only because of this cousin called me. And lo and behold, I carried the BRCA2 gene mutation, okay? And if it wasn't wow. for me speaking up, I would know my daughter needs to be tested. My brother carries the gene. My aunt carries the gene. We've got other family members who have now made surgical decisions to prevent so that is a modifiable risk factor. And only one yeah. in four women in the general population, I'm sorry, one in four women in the general population are um, eligible for BRC2 testing, but they don't get it, um, or genetic testing in general, and they don't get it. And I see a lot of breast cancer survivors who say they had negative genetics, but it was a number of years ago, and they have to remember to do update testing. So. Wow. So back when I put myself in premature menopause surgically, I was wow. looking, telling me, you're a broccoli too. And you <laughs> ovaries out, right? Oh my,
0: you've got to stop. I've got to unpick. Like my mind is just, I didn't know any of this, but, but, but what's so interesting for me is that you're this medical doctor, a scientist, a clinician. And you've just talked to me about two or three examples of when you did not make a decision based on evidence and facts. And I think that is really beautiful about your journey because we are these three-dimensional human beings and we don't base all of our decisions on evidence and facts and signs alone. And a lot of our decision-making process is really sort of indicated of what's happened in our past. Like your friend's passing, that tragic death as a very young mother has made an impact on you and made you decide perhaps a different way if that hadn't had happened. Your mother having ovarian cancer, all of those things really impact us today and our future self, and the same is with stories. Who are you following on social media? What sort of outlets are you tuning into? This will all become part of our consciousness, subconsciousness, and it will make us
1: decide certain ways. Yes, and and our doctors make us decide certain ways. So my my mission yeah. is yes. There's there's lo- there's tons of experiences out there, and you can you can be influenced by lots of things. But in the end, we do want to focus on science and we do want to focus on evidence. And what I am most dismayed about is now here I am, almost 23-year survivor, okay? And I've seen the evolution of where breast cancer treatment has been and where it's, it's going. And we're going in a wonderful direction in that we're catching it earlier. We're having higher cure rates. We've got more tailored treatments, more personalized, more precision treatment. Yet, yet. Despite all of that I still see a huge amount of an, and there's an acceptable level of suffering in the medical community for for women who are breast cancer survivors um it's I feel like we're in an arms race right now of like how much can we starve these women of their hormones and and suppress them in the name of this kind of I don't know. It's a very purest view of treating their their cancer and only focusing on this hormone suppression, right? And then, so we have an army of women who are being left to survive, but to survive, you know, with a lot of collateral damage, and no one's really talking about that collateral. Mm.
0: And we need to include women with other cancers as well, because I know our conversation is about your journey with breast cancer. But I speak to so many women after ovarian cancers, womb cancers, other gyne cancers who have also been pushed into the surgically onset menopause. And I have spoken to them when their life has fallen apart and they could not get out of their chair and care and care for their children. It
1: is horrendous of what happens. It's any cancer that affects your ovarian function yeah. uh, sexual function and not just ovarian function, it's women who have pelvic radiation, it's colon cancer survivors. Yeah. It's yeah. it's yes, you're you're it's right. It's huge. It it's is huge. and so while we work towards a world where we're curing many more cancers and we're getting but we're also diagnosing that at younger stages and uh, younger ages and we're getting them early. And so our survivorship pool is just Rapidly growing. So who is addressing the elephant in the room of what to do? G- survivors, we're putting I up know. much higher risk right now of heart disease, osteoporotic fractures and dementia. Those three big ones are huge quality of life issues, and honestly, life and death issues for any woman, right? Those three things. Number one killer is heart disease. We know the severe risks of, you know, um, osteoporosis and and fractures and hip fractures, um, and the dementia risk, right? And so, what are we doing? So, are we going to just make all of these women either surgically or chemically menopausal and tell them to just be happy that they're alive and that their breast cancer hasn't come back, and then ignore everything else? It's honestly, it's unethical, I think.
0: So, okay, so you are in surgically onset menopause. Let's come back to your story. You're not doing great, but you're a busy mum. Um, and you're working hard. And and how did you manage your symptoms? So
1: um finally, a nurse in my oncologist's um, office was like, Grant, why don't you go into Selexa, antidepressant, right? Like you it, it may might help you with your sleep and hot So I was like, well, someone is actually caring about me and thinking about me. So I did that. And yes, like the, we know in about 50% of women, one of the antidepressants may help with certainly some of the anxious feelings, the low-grade mood changes. It helped a bit with the hot flashes and the night sweats. It helped me sleep somewhat. Um, but it wasn't great. you know. In retrospect, everything I've learned now, really doing menopause as a specialty, I would have done a whole lot different, right? I would have Focused on my nutrition, on strength training, my exercise. I would have explored non-hormonal options to treat my system, my hot flashes, my vasomotor symptoms. I would have been super proactive with vaginal hormones. Um, and then, as soon as I finished my tamoxifen and it was done with it, I would have really advocated and educated myself about you know my options for hormone therapy. Um, so. I am kind of making up for lost time with <laughs> other women because I kind of suffered for 23 years and I didn't do really any of those things cuz I was just juggling mm-hmm. the things in my life. And I know it's a very big burden to put on cancer survivors being like, "Well, oh, you want to steal better with all your treatments. Now we're going to ask you to do five extra things." But the reality is they're all things that everybody should be doing in life. And so you can think of yourself as having just an extra special reason to really push yourself to think holistically. About your health.
0: Yeah, and sometimes we learn what you teach now is what you wish someone would have taught you, right? And that's a, that's okay. I think what you've just mentioned is so empowering, isn't it? It's that holistic approach, and that is our menopause toolkit for anyone who survived cancer. It's your exercise, it's your diet, it's looking at all of the non-hormonal treatment options. It's also looking at all your vagina, your vulva health, and looking also at our emotional health, like whether antidepressants work or whether you start a little bit of counseling or cognitive behavior therapy or look at complementary therapies. I feel like so many of us work so hard to put that toolkit together. It can feel exhausting, but when you found a few things that work, it's really empowering because it's great for all of you, long-term health for now, but we have to work hard, right? It's, you have to be dedicated to do this. It doesn't come easy. Hey, thank you for listening so far. This podcast has an amazing Facebook community full of inspiring women, supporting each other and sharing their stories. Please come and be part of it. We'd love to have you in the group. Click the link in the show notes and come in now.
1: And so to me, I find it highly unacceptable. That when you've got a woman who is being told, we're going to put you into chemical or surgical menopause, we're going to give you medications that, listen, I, I know I mentioned that tamoxifen, I did well with it. Um, and in premenopausal women, they often tolerate it better. But there's many women who really suffer with the side effects of tamoxifen, And we didn't even touch to women who have ovarian suppression and an aromatase inhibitor, which takes your estrogen levels and makes it even lower than kind of the classic menopausal level. So if you are re- meeting with a patient and you are saying, we're going to offer you this treatment, you better do two things. You better explain to her what the side effects are. The other day I had a patient who was like, I didn't realize until I told my oncologist that I had severe pelvic pain with sex, that I could have vaginal estrogen. He never asked me if I had vaginal pain or you know vaginal dryness and pain with sex. And I never realized it was a side effect of my hormone, my adjuvant endocrine treatment. And once I brought it up, he was like, oh, yeah, you can have vaginal estrogen. She's like, but meanwhile, I've been suffering for three years. And so to me, that's unacceptable, right? Like it needs to be up in the beginning. The other thing that I am seeing is that women don't understand the benefit of their adjuvant endocrine treatment. And many of these women either are suffering with the side effects and want to quit it, and they don't actually realize what the actual benefit. The other thing I see is women who are suffering from the side effects and want to stay on it, and they don't realize that their benefit is so small. Someone needs to say, this is your true benefit of doing this significant adjuvant endocrine therapy. And in some cases, the benefit's like 1% at 15 years. Now, that's your choice to make that decision. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. But if you have a very small incremental benefit of continued adjuvant endocrine therapy, particularly on ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor, you better be told so you can make an informed decision. I see patients, I'm seeing so many patients with early stage breast cancer, stage one, low grade, grade one or grade two, lymph node negative. Who are on extreme endocrine therapy, meaning hormone suppression plus an aromatase inhibitors, and they think they have to say that in 10 years and they are suffering. And there are tools. There's a tool that your your patients, any of your listeners know this. Yes. assist, adjuvant online. Anybody, any health professional can use this tool. You can type in your type of breast cancer. This is for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, and it will tell you what is your five-year. 10-year, 15-year survival prognosis, risk of recurrence. And it will also tell you if you add in and um, endocrine therapy for five years, and then you can do it again for 10 years. And when I show that to women, sometimes women have a big benefit and they're like, oh, okay, I get a man. Let's work together to figure out how I can best stay on my medication. Other times I show it to women, they're like, wait, I have got a 1% benefit at 15 years. I'm like, no one told you that?
0: And the tool that you just mentioned is obviously the tool that you use in America. We've just had an oncologist uh, doing a workshop with us and she showed us the tool, how it worked. She did a screen share and it was really great. She brought up two different patients, examples of similar patients, both were 47 years old and a little bit, she changed, she tweaked the figures and the benefit was really different. And it was amazing to see on the data, on the
1: chart, it was really quite, quite mind blowing. That's informed consent. That's shared decision-making when you fully realize the benefit, you know, of your therapy. And, you know, so I think that's not being done. I don't see that being done with Mm. most, you know, they're literally here, next step, here's your aromatase inhibitor. Next step, here's your Dramoxivant. Or next step, here's this. And okay, see you. See you in six months. Like, that's it. There's no discussion. Mm. Um. So you kind of
0: got by for about 20 years, which um, then, then how old are you now? And when did you think getting by is not enough? Yeah. What, what happened?
1: So um, so I, yeah, I got by, so I selected, then I, I changed to Effexor. And Effexor did, we have a lot of data on Effexor, the vaccine helping, you know, the hot flashes and stuff. So that helped me enough. Um, I think I used vaginal estrogen off and on. I was just like my patients., Ooh, I was not compliant. Again, I think I was I was just I was being a bad patient. I was too busy taking care of my family and my medical practice to really focus on myself. But finally, right before I turned fifty, um, you know, I read the book Estrogen Matters. So cheers to Avram Blooming. That book changed my life and reading the scientific literature surrounding, Estrogen hormone therapy after breast cancer, and um, luckily, I actually have a wonderful oncologist who um, really does allow a discussion. And so, started talking with him, and I says, "Listen, you know, I am only fifty, and I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I feel like an old woman. I get out of bed, my joints hurt. I've got, you know, a lot of. I did the in body scan. I had lots of visceral fat." My cholesterol was high, you know, my thyroid was bad, my skin was terrible, my sexual. When when you lose vaginal estrogen and the hormones there for a long period of time, you start to normalize what you think your sexual life should be. And I was like, oh, it's okay, you know, use a lubricant. It's okay. Until I finally committed and made that next step to say, I'm gonna be consistent. I know I can use vaginal hormones. That that is always been, you know, we know that that's very safe. And then I took the next step and I says, I'm going to try for three months, a transdermal low dose estradiol patch, started with the lowest dose, 1.025, and then 100 milligrams of progesterone in the evening. And then I, I went up to 200 milligrams. And I will tell you within like th- two weeks, it was like a light bulb went off in my head in my body and I and I felt completely different. And to the point where I almost even right now I, I can feel a little emotional about it because I was like, oh my God, like I was I was a shell of myself and I was so young. I was only, you know, twenty-eight when that happened. And yeah
0: um,
1: it's and I just think of all the suffering of women who had to live. Yeah. With that. And I feel really good now, and I'm able to sleep. My mood is better. My sexual life is better. Um, I'm able to exercise. My 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 all the good things we tell survivors to do. It was kind of hard for me to do because I didn't honestly because I wasn't sleeping. My joints hurt, and I fla- I had hot flashes all the time. So as much yeah. as, you know, so for me, it's been a powerful decision. And I, and I do it knowing that I don't have a perfect randomized controlled study that tells me I have guaranteed safety that my breast cancer will never come back because of my hormone therapy. But what I do have is over 25 scientific studies that show there is no increased risk of recurrence. It does not worsen prognosis women who choose to take hormone therapy after completing their breast cancer treatment. So when mm-hmm. an oncologist says it's unsafe there's no data it's actually just simply not true that there's no data there's not perfect data there isn't and mm-hmm. we're never going to have perfect data on this but we have a whole world of uh, a large body of scientific evidence that is somewhat imperfect but you know a growing body of information that says it's something reasonable to consider Um, you know, I tell patients we have to make what seems like perfect decisions with very imperfect information. So what can we do? We can take the best information out there and we can, you know, that's why we went to medical school, right? We, you know, we were supposed to be able to process lots of information. We take that information and present it to ourselves and to our patients and say, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. How are you feeling? What would you like to do? And so that's kind of what I did for myself. I had tried the non-hormonal things. They helped to for some aspects, and that's fine. Um, But they, they weren't helping everything. And I just decided at this point, this is what I wanted to do.
0: And Corinne, I could see you getting emotional there because I think sometimes when we look back, we only realize how rubbish we felt when we start to feel better And there's also a sadness and a loss that comes with it because you've spent a lot of your time here on this earth actually feeling with a very much reduced quality of life. And then we do feel a bit sorry and sad for ourself, isn't it? For that younger self who's really struggled, who hasn't had better options, who just lived like that. But I think when it comes down, and I want to touch on two points because you share beautiful from your personal experiences. Some women choose to stay on. Endocrine treatment, even if it just gives them that 1%, because what all of us doing, what you are doing, what I'm doing, what everyone at home is doing, we're all managing our risks and we just want to stay alive, right? That is the main priority for most of us. And I don't want to speak, I don't want to speak for everyone at home, but I'm assuming, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. This is why we're going on these treatments. And at the same time, sometimes we wake up some days and we're like, I just need to feel a bit better than this. And what can I do? And it's a brave decision you've taken. Can I just ask you, in the UK, um, hormone replacement therapy for women who've had breast cancer, especially um, with hormone receptor positive cancer, see, I've learned my language, is <laughs> contraindicated. You are a member of the American
1: Menopause Society, is that right? It's it's the it's called the menopause society. It used to be called the North American Menopause Society. Yes, it's, it's yeah. a breast cancer. The language is breast cancer. A personal history of breast cancer is a relative contraindication to hormone therapy. But okay, and so that's an official standpoint in a very general term. The but but all of the contraindications that are mentioned in the Menopause Society statement, American College of OBGYN statement. So like, you know, personal history of cardiac event, heart attack, you know, pulmonary embolus, active liver disease, unexplained vaginal bleeding, and a personal history of breast cancer. Really in all of those scenarios, you could go through each one of those and say, okay, in an individual patient with any one of those things, when you kind of dig deep and and look at like the full picture, you know, we don't we don't treat patients by just like check boxes in, a, in an algorithm. We would look at them individually, and because breast cancer is such a, um, you know, there's so many flavors of breast cancer, and there's women who are in active treatment, you know, women who are long term survivors. We can't just lump them all in one category. And there's a lot of like actual crazy upside down science that is happening, or not even science, is happening. And my, I myself is a perfect example, if I, let's go back, if I chose not to get my ovaries out, remember, at that point in time, I was nearing, I was getting close, I was maybe on year seven of tamoxifen. I had ovarian function. My ovaries were working. My oncologist was perfectly happy with me getting my period every month and having high levels of estrogen. I was almost about to complete tamoxifen a couple more years and at that point i i would have been whatever you know in my mid-30s right nobody was telling me to remove my ovaries so Mm -hmm. let's pretend i didn't have the BRCA mutation right i would have had normal ovarian function until the age of at least 51 probably right and no one would have had a problem with that yeah nobody but suddenly I chose to get my ovaries taken out. And yes, I know it was a little backwards because I didn't have the gene, but then yeah. I had the gene. But whatever, take my ovaries out, and suddenly I can't have any estrogen. Like, how does yeah. that make any sense? It doesn't make sense. And I see yep. receptor negative breast cancer patients all the time. These women finish their treatment. They're, sometimes their periods come back. If they're young women and they lost their periods, they come back. Nobody out there is telling them to have ovarian suppression because they're estrogen receptor negative. So they go seven years, stay with their periods, then they go through menopause, and sudden and they're really suffering. And suddenly, people are like, "You can't have any estrogen." I'm like, "Are you kidding?" Yeah. She had breast cancer. She was treated. She's had high estrogen levels for years. She's suffering now, and you're afraid to give her a teardrop when she had years of an ocean of estrogen. It literally doesn't make any sense. So these triple negative patients shouldn't be lumped in just with everybody. It needs to be much more nuanced. Yeah. Tell
0: me, I really want to understand how you made that decision. You spoke to your oncologist. What was your conversation like with your husband, for example? Did you, were you, like, tell
1: me, like, how does that happen? Well, listen, my husband, he's not in medicine. So he just, like, he just trusts what I I I do like he's like, okay, he, he he's like you sure it's it's okay? I'm like yeah. Like he he defers to me because I'm an OBGYN. I think I'm in a unique you know, situation. I mean I called in my own I'm therapy. I'm like I said to my oncologist, hey Medelman, this is what I'm doing. He's like okay, Grant. I'm like you need me to call it. I'm like no, I got this. I mean I'm I'm privileged. I'm a doctor. I'm an OBGYN. This is what I do. Um, for me personally, everything in life is risks versus benefits. There's a risk to doing something and there's a benefit to doing it. There was a risk for me not to do hormone therapy for me personally. The risk was is that I continued to suffer, not feel well, um, and in multiple facets of my life. And I was getting to be at this point as 23 years survivor, very concerned about the other law. Lo- I-, I was getting more and more concerned about my heart, my brain, and my bones at this point. And I was like, if my breast cancer comes back, I truly believe that if it it comes back, it was going to come back. I I will tackle it and I will deal with it at that point in time. And I, you know, will, you know, do what I need to do. But I felt that for me, the benefits are far outweighing any risks. And I feel really good with my decision. Um, And when I counsel other women, you know, I think it's always important For anybody listening that, I don't think that anything is black and white. Like, yes, you should be in hormone therapy. No, you should be not, whether you're a breast cancer survivor or just an average woman. But you deserve to have the information. And so my approach is normally finding out where are you in treatment? Have you finished your therapy? If you're in treatment and you're suffering with menopausal symptoms, what can we do so that you can stay on your therapy? Is your therapy the correct therapy for you? Have you been fully informed? If so, great. If not, let's get informed. Um, we're lucky to have lots of these non-hormonal treatment options now. I want women to be much more proactive. I feel like when they go to their doctor, they should be, here's your prescription for your aromatase inhibitor. Here's low-dose vaginal estrogen. We're going to prevent horrific changes that are to come. Instead, they say, go away, use a little bit of moisturizer, come back in six months when it's not working, which it never totally worked. So, of course, they're going to need it. But now they've got worse tissue, right? So, like, we should be more proactive with the people in treatment. And then post-treatment, you know, we need to, okay, let's come in for the oncology visit. Let's check on how you're doing in terms of your breast cancer. You know, do your exams, any lab tests. But the second piece is, what are we doing to keep you healthy and alive besides your (laughs) breast cancer, we are treating breast cancer and curing women in other ways. And so, mm. you know, that's the conversation. It, it has to be very individualized. Mm. That third decision,
0: that other big decision of going on a low-dose hormone replacement therapy was that, do you think, an emotional decision? Like we spoke about different ways of making decisions, or do you think that was more a scientific, data-driven, or a combination of? Was a combination. What was that?
1: I mean, it was um, it was a it was it was data-driven. I felt comfortable enough with the data. I felt like I understood it and I understood risks, benefits there from a very scientific standpoint. But it was also an emotional decision in a, a, in a, that I was kind of just like, yes, I'm done. <laughs> I'm sick of suffering. I want to commit to, a lot of women, listen, when they turn 50, like a lot of women who are going through menopause naturally, 50 is a wake-up call for them. It's a time to pause and think about themselves. They've been caring for all, maybe their spouses, their partners, their children, their work for all these years. And now they're like, oh, I better like think about what I want for the next 50 years, right? So for me turning 50, it was emotional to me because I was like, damn, I made it to 50? I didn't think I'd even be alive. Right? Literally, (laughs) at 28, I never thought I'd be here at 50. I never, I thought I would definitely die of my breast cancer sooner. I I really never thought I'd be here. And so now I'm like, damn, I got here. I'm like, God, do I want to be like this? Is this what I want the rest of my life? It's like, no. So I felt very empowered and very, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was reclaiming a little bit more of it and being a little bit more in control of how I age and I'm controlling. Mm -hmm. I'm aging with breast cancer because I still consider that I am still with breast cancer because once you have breast cancer, particularly estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, we know estrogen re- post- receptor positive breast cancer can come back at a much later stage, years later, right? Suzanne Summers, she, you know, sadly passed away. She was diagnosed right before I was. So her passing is very sad for me in all breast mm. cancer, of course. But you know we were diagnosed around the same time, and it shows that like her and Olivia and John, their breast cancer came back many, many years later, right? So, I, you know, I, I understand that, but I, um, yeah, I think there's it comes to a point where you just, you know, for me, I felt emotionally empowered. Yes, so it was a mix. Mm-hmm.
0: And it goes back to being so grateful for having survived, right? We're so grateful for being here. And we know so many people are worse off, but also better off. There are so many women who never get diagnosed with cancer in the first place. And so there's always someone who's worse off and someone who's better off. And we're just trying to do our best. And I know this is a really emotive conversation. And it comes with a lot of judgment. And it comes with a lot of criticism whenever I speak to people who are on Hormone replacement therapy after the breast cancer—it comes with a lot of criticism, trolling. There are people on social media that often say to me they want to share their story with me, but they say I'd never come onto the podcast and share it because imagine the backlash I would get. And so, I,
1: it's it's absurd for us I to see like someone who has survived any any medical condition—I don't care whether it's cancer or something else—and then you know they're trying to then put their lives back together and make the decisions that are best for them. Now, we are not talking, to be clear, we are not talking about things that are not based in science. What we are saying is that breast cancer survivors deserve a conversation of what the available evidence is. We have over 25 studies. We've got the literature from pregnancy. We've got Lots of science that we know about how tamoxifen works, and you know, there's a lots of different areas to draw on this body of science and evidence. It is not unreasonable to say to a patient, I, you know, you know, to to talk to a patient and doctor and say, let's sit down and look at this, and decide what's next in your life journey as you are a survivor. That's not irresponsible. In fact, it's irresponsible to not have that conversation because it is so let me ask you this are we cutting off testicles of men right are no art seriously to treat their cancers testicular cancer and not giving them testosterone replacement no No. The very first thing when when my my dad went in for um prostate cancer when he's doing fine the first Freaking visit that I went to with him because he brought me in. The very first thing they talked about was his sexual health. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, to preserve it. And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like, "How is <laughs> one women telling me that oncologists tell them you should just be grateful you're alive? Really, sex? Mm. Why do you care?" Hot slash, Give me a break. Where you know, like, get a fan it's the it's so in the new york times article um women have been misled on, on menopause which went viral around the world dr Stephanie and fabian has a beautiful quote in there that went also viral that um about the um level of you know there's an acceptable level of suffering for women
0: right? yeah
1: and i would sure, say for sure times 10 for anybody who had breast cancer okay yeah. there's Acceptable level of suffering in breast cancer survivors that is not tolerated. One in the male population, and it's just not really tolerated in any other avenue in medicine. But there's something yeah. about breast cancer survivors that it's just like this kind of suffering, whether it's sexual suffering or you know um, quality of life suffering. It's considered it's okay. Yeah,
0: to do- it's a trade off.
1: It's, it's a trade
0: off for having survived cancer,
1: but I tell patients it's not an acceptable trade off, and there are really good hormonal things that should be done with local vaginal hormones, and you, there are systemic hormone options that you deserve to have access and knowledge to your body, your choice. To me, it's part of reproductive health rights, and it's mm-hmm. just the continuum of reproductive health rights. You know. Mm.
0: And I'm going to just give you one example to finish this beautiful conversation with you. And that is one of managing risks. So we were cycling um, to the theatre with a whole group of my girlfriends and the theatre is only down the road. We cycle along the River Thames. It's beautiful where we are in Surrey, in the suburbs of London. Um, I am. And there's a whole bunch of us and one of my friends, Rebecca, and I hope she will listen to this one day. She'll say, Danny, what are you doing? You're cycling without a helmet. And I looked at her and I thought, it's funny. There's about seven of us and some of us wore helmets and others didn't. And she said, you're so afraid to have an ice cream because you think the sugar is going to make your cancer come back. But here you are cycling (laughs) without helmet. And that to her made absolutely no sense. In her risk versus benefit sort of calculation, it was much more risque to cycle along to the theater without helmet on and, you know, being hit by a car. In my risk versus benefit sort of calculation, I would never even think about the blooming helmet all I could think of was all the food and and you know the sugar might you know all of the other things I worried about and so it's so personal isn't it and I really truly also believe that if someone is curious about what would that mean for them what would any treatment mean for them post their particular kinds of cancer we really do deserve the answers because it is our life and we only us get to live it every single day.
1: Yeah. Absolutely And anything for breast cancer survivors, and you, you touch on an important point of this idea of whether it's sugar or having some alcohol or what you eat, you know you might have exercised. There's a lot of there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of fear around all of these things. And you know patients ask me, well, do you, do you have any wine that kind of do you, do you eat sweet?" I'm like,, like I think that listen, you have to live a life of happy balance. And if your happy balance is that you are really, really diligent about how you eat and your nutrition, that's great. And and I encourage it. I think that's really important. But I also think you have to also live your life and not be afraid. Because as a doctor, I can tell you I've seen the most unhealthy people in the world never get cancer or get cancer, don't do anything to improve their life after cancer. They survive their cancer and they live, you know, decades, right? And I see tons of super fit, active, healthy women doing all of the right things who get diagnosed with breast cancer and some of them recur and unfortunately lose some of them. And you know what? You have to not be, you know, um, don't don't put too much of a burden of, of, of guilt and fear on yourselves. You know, you do your best you can each single day to feel as healthy and as alive as possible. And- um you know and 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 that may look different for everybody but we need to let go of a lot of the guilt and fear you know
0: yeah You know what, that is one thing I'm still working towards and I'm 10 years on from my triple negative cancer diagnosis and that is to live a life with less fear. And I feel that fear is something that was so hard for me to shake in all those years. And a lot of my decisions were definitely based on, so when I made decisions, they were based on fear and driven by that horrible feeling of the what-ifs. And now I come more and more into that space where I make decisions based on really enjoying life and being alive and what does it mean to be alive today with all of my symptoms or none of my symptoms. Um, but I think letting go of that fear is a really important part for all of us. Corinne, you've been amazing today. Thank you so much. This is a really difficult topic that I know a lot of people will maybe disagree with you or, or agree with you and they will disagree and agree with what I've said. And all we can do is share what? our stories and, and our
1: experiences. And you've been
0: amazing. Thank you. Wow. Well-
1: Thank you. Please. Just so everyone knows, nothing that I say here should mean that I'm advising this for you personally, and I give individual advice to all my patients, and not everyone should do make my decision. It has to be individualized, but you deserve to get access to that individualized care. Thank you.
0: Wow, I wonder how you're feeling now. I know whenever we talk about the use of hormone replacement therapy for someone with a history of breast cancer or cancer, it's an emotive subject. It's full of controversy. People have different opinions. It is contraindicated for anyone with a hormone receptor positive cancer or breast cancer in the UK. And so I know this is a subject that isn't easy. Many of you would have listened to Corinne. You would have agreed or disagreed with her. But what really was really highlighted for me in this conversation, it wasn't really about whether Corinne decided to go on hormone replacement therapy many years after her breast cancer diagnosis or not. What really stood out for me in chatting to Corinne was how many big decisions we have to make as cancer patients. And they're never easy. Whatever you decide to do, it's a decision. And not doing something or being indecisive is a decision in its own. And so I want you to just take a moment and think back how many huge decisions did you have to make and to give yourself a big pat on the back for making all of those decisions. And I sometimes look back and I think, oh, With hindsight, I would do things very differently now, and I sometimes look back and think, wow, Danny, you were really brave making that decision. You know, the doctors told me about my risks of more breast cancers with my genetic mutation, but it was my decision to have the double mastectomy. My doctors told me about the risks of ovarian cancer, but it was my decision. But I know because so many women, or all of the women on my dad's side in our family, died of ovarian cancer, so early, way before they even turned 55. It was an easier decision for me because my family planning was complete and I was so worried that I would get ovarian cancer too. And so that was totally an emotive decision. And I know it would be a very different decision if someone hasn't completed their family, for example, or if someone hasn't had so many ovarian cancer cases in their family. And so whatever happens around you, what happens in your friends' lives, in your family's lives, the people you follow on social media, the doctors, all of this information is going to muddle its way into your decision-making process. And We all have to make so many big decisions. You know, many women and people just have to make plain easy decisions, what to wear, to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. But once you've had a cancer diagnosis, you have to make a lot of big decisions. And it really shone out for me that it's just one decision Corinne made in her experience since her cancer diagnosis. And she made many, many others, including how to put together her gorgeous family. That was really such a highlight for me. I I didn't know that about her and I thought it was beautiful in how she put together her family, given her risks and benefits and making her decisions, different decisions at different times in her treatment. And so I think this whole conversation for me is really about decisions, it's about information, it's about choice, and it's having all of those conversations in a non-judgmental and supportive way. So that we can all lift each other up, even if your decision is totally opposite to my decision, we're still here as survivors trying to do our very best we can every single day. And I really hope that all of us can come to a place where we feel we've got a good quality of life and we've done lots and we had lots of support by lots of amazing doctors to have this good quality of life because we've only got this one shot on this gorgeous planet. And when I look back, I often look back with sadness because there were so many years in my life post my cancer diagnosis that I was just so scared. And a lot of my decisions were based on fear. And I look back now at this very fearful Danny, and I think, gosh, it was a waste of time. And I know people said to me, oh, don't worry. Worrying is a waste of your time. Whatever you worry about might never happen, but that never went in and I couldn't internalize it. And now looking back, I think it was a little bit of a wasted opportunity because here I am today, so many years on having survived, But many years came with a reduced quality of life. I guess it's about learning and it's about showing up every single day. And so, thank you for showing up to this conversation. And I thank Corinne again for having this open conversation, not with just myself, but with all of us. And I hope, yeah, that this conversation has been as you know, useful as it has been for me, but also as gorgeous to hear Corinne talking about all of her decision making processes. And with that, I love you and leave you. And I see you next week on the podcast. And I hope everything is okay in your world at the moment. <laughs>